0: As has been my experience dozens of times before, I have a new favorite book of the Bible. So join me in the book of Acts, if you will. Can't wait to continue to work our way through this book. We just got started last week, so we're taking our first steps into this adventure. Last week I gave the title of the introduction to it as Acts. The Saga of Your Spiritual Family. These are our roots, if you will. This book records the seamless connection from the prophecies of the Old Testament to the arrival of Jesus Christ, to His ministry, His death, burial, and resurrection, and then the continuation of His work on earth in the era of the New Covenant. I heard someone uh, musing on a radio program this week about uh, when the New Covenant began. Well, it was first announced as a New Covenant through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31. It was described again by um, uh, Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter. 36. But it didn't begin then. It was a promise that it would come. So did it begin that night before Jesus went to the cross, when He sat around the the table and He instituted the Lord's Supper in place of the Passover, and He held up that chalice and said, this cup is the new covenant in My blood? Did it begin when He said those words? Did it begin when He touched it to His lips? Did it begin that night, the next day? Did it begin when... uh, He shed His blood on the cross, and before the cross? Did it begin when He said it is finished and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom? Or did it begin when He rose from the dead? Or did it begin in Acts chapter 2 when the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which was so much a part of that promise actually came to pass, or, or, or did it begin later as the, as the church began to grow and Jews and Gentiles were folded together into this new body? Finally, we know that by the time of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, we are ministers of a new covenant, and he contrasts the old and the new. Well, here's the point. When did it begin? Was it one of those points? Well, Yeah or all of them? It wasn't an instant or in the mind of God. I'm sure there was an instant, but you know, or, or did it did the old covenant continue until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70? And that was the final end of the old covenant and now it's only new covenant. The point is things don't change in an instant in real life with real people. Acts is the history of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Approximately 30 years following Jesus is recorded in the book of Acts. Our passage today includes what you could arguably say is the exclamation point on Jesus' life when He ascended back to the Father from whom He came. Now, as we've uh, jumped into the book of Acts, you noticed last week I... Labeled it Chapter One, Verse One, and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, there are 28 chapters, and he's going to go one verse a week." No, uh, this week we're doing 11 verses, and and where we can through the Book of Acts, since it is a historical book, it's a narrative, not a not an epistle, not uh, primarily doctrine. Uh, I want to take um, the the largest chunks we can logically take, and there will be places to slow down and do more spiritual mastication on some of the special parts. But we'll see them as we get there. But today, the first 11 verses of chapter 1. And here's a, an outline to hang your hat on. Verse 1 and 2 refer back to Luke's prequel. Then verse 3, Jesus' presentation, verses 4 and 5. The Father's promise, verses 6 through 8, Jesus' prediction, And verses 9 through 11, Jesus' promotion. Well, first, um, we dealt with this in some detail last week. I just want to include it today because it's part of what we're dealing with. Um, We covered it in detail last week with the introduction. Luke wrote a two-volume treatise. The Gospel of Luke is about the life of Jesus Christ through His ascension. The book of Acts is the next 30 years' history. The initial target of this book was a Roman official, probably a regional governor named Theophilus, but it was included by God in the canon of Scripture for all of us. The first two verses say, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up to heaven after He had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. So He describes the entire life of Christ as what He began to do. And so Acts is what he continues to do, but it's a whole different era. Then, here's mention of Jesus' presentation. To these, that is to the apostles, he also, and to others, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning. The kingdom of God. Many convincing proofs that he rose from the dead. Now, I would submit to you that the best way to convince somebody you're alive would be talk to him, meet with him, hang out with him. Well, many convincing proofs. All of his appearances after he rose from the dead are his proofs. So I started looking for a way to portray that for you, and I found a really nice graphic presentation of the the 40-day timeline of all of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances. Um, and then I put it on a slide and it would have looked to you like a picture that I drew in the third grade. Uh, you wouldn't have been able to distinguish any of the detail of it. But if you want one, it is in Answers in Genesis's website. Look up post-resurrection appearances. And it's a really well-done thing. Well, with my graphic ability here's a list of the things that, of the times that Jesus appeared this we know were his many convincing proofs he appeared to Mary Magdalene early sunday morning right after dawn or right at dawn then to the women who were returning from the tomb then to two disciples going to Emmaus that day, what an interesting story that is, and Luke recorded that for us. Then he appeared to Peter later that same day, and then that evening he appeared to um, the other uh, to ten of the other eleven uh, apostles. Uh, Thomas was not present at that meeting. Then the following Sunday he appeared to all of the apostles, Thomas present. Remember when they told Thomas, "Hey, we saw the Lord," and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll believe it when I can, you know, see the wounds." And he saw. And remember what he said: "My Lord and my God." And he fell at his feet. And then he appeared to seven apostles fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He had told them to go up and wait for him in Galilee. And uh, they went up there and they waited, but they decided fishing 's a good thing to do while you 're waiting. There may have been some faith issues involved in that, but uh, anyway, jesus met with met them there and and um, gathered them around. Then he met with the eleven disciples in um, in in Galilee then we 're told he met he, he, he appeared to over five hundred disciples at once we don 't know the exact location there 's a lot of speculation about it, which proves we don't know the exact location, um, and it doesn't really matter. Then he appeared to James. Now when we say James, we don't mean James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. We don't mean James, the son of Alphaeus in the list of the apostles, James the less. This is James, his half-brother. This is the oldest of his uh, half-siblings uh, born naturally to Joseph and Mary. And Jesus had some very specific things to do with James who became the uh, de facto leader and spokesman of the church at Jerusalem for the first generation of believers there and uh, then he appeared we're going to see it in our text today to the apostles at his uh, ascension and then this not referred to in acts chapter 1 verse 3 because these came later but speaking of many convincing proofs he appeared to Stephen as he was martyred. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 7. He appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. And that was the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We'll see that in Acts chapter 9. And then, not in the book of Acts, no, he appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. He rose from the dead. That's the point. And no one can refute it. And you're going to see as we go through the book of Acts, how fun it would have been to preach in that, in that city in that time and be able to say, that empty tomb over there. And everybody knew where the tomb was and everybody knew it was empty and nobody could refute it. Many convincing proofs. Well, then we have reference to the Father's promise, verses 4 and 5. Gathering them together... He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. So first He told them, I'll meet you in Galilee. They went to Galilee. He met with them there. Then He said, okay, go to to, to Jerusalem. And now He meets with them again. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised, which, He said, you heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now baptism means immersed you'll be immersed in the holy spirit he will come upon you now interesting what's translated there gathering them together it's a, one of those very unusual words it only occurs once in the whole new testament now when you have a word that only occurs once you can't compare its usages in all of the other places to get its meaning um, there are places outside the Bible where the core meaning of this word comes through as eating with someone. You'll even find some English translations that say while eating with them rather than gathering them together. Now, it doesn't make any difference about the, the meaning of the passage, but the idea of him eating with them more vividly portrays the reality that it was a real Resurrected body and he did real body type things like eating and drinking and walking and talking and uh, and all of that um, and and from a reference that Peter makes in Acts chapter 10 verse 41 about having eaten with the risen Christ, that kind of supports that idea, but we know that you know he also um, fried some fish on the on the sea and on, on, the, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee and that. But so, you know, we don't know exactly when, but he, he ate. He had a real body. That's all I'm trying to say. Now, you can search back through the Gospels, and especially John 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus' uh, teaching with the disciples around the, the, the Passover meal. Uh, and you can see all the places that Jesus had stated the promise, the Father will send the Holy Spirit after i am gone and jesus reiterated it again at this meeting that that was going to come Uh, matter of fact in john 16 7 just looking at it this morning it is he said it is to your advantage that i go away now they weren't thinking oh yeah we, we can't wait for you to go away they didn't want him to go away but he said it's to your advantage that i go away so that the holy spirit will be coming from the father and then uh Remember the, John uh, chapter seven? Jesus had said, "Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water." And that refers to the Holy Spirit." It was another picture of that promise from the Father. And so it's all building. Then comes Jesus' prediction. We read through those first five verses last time. Now look what Jesus is going to predict. Starts in verse 6. The prediction isn't until 7 and 8. But look at verse 6 with me. So, when they came together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, that's a straightforward enough question. There's no doubt about what they were asking. But the background of that question is important. Luke recorded that on the day just before Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for what we call the triumphal entry, He was teaching the people who were with Him. Now that would have included the twelve and whatever size entourage of other believers were uh, walking along that road from, Jer- from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Uh, as far as the elevation change, it's almost identical. If you were to walk from Heritage Bible Church to uh, the top of Bogus Basin, uh, so it was a big uphill climb. It was it was a basically a two-day journey. A little less uh, mileage from here to Bogus Basin, but it was it was a big deal. And pe- people usually made it to uh, two days. And while they were going along, he was teaching as He always was, teaching, talking, answering questions. And Luke recorded this for us in Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. I'm not going to teach you the parable. You can go look at it for yourself. But the parable is about people and their stewardship while the Master is away. He's trying to plant that idea in them, as He had in many of His parables. He was telling them a parable because... He was near Jerusalem. He knew what was going to be happening there. They didn't. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They believed they were on their way to Jesus' coronation for the kingdom of God on earth. They knew the Old Testament. They were expecting the Messiah they understood Jesus is the Messiah, and they knew that the Messiah would bring the kingdom of God to earth. But since the Old Testament does not make clear that there are two separate comings of the Messiah, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So this entire group could not yet understand that Jesus was going to Jerusalem exactly according to the plan that He and the Father had, but it was not for His coronation. He was going to Jerusalem to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, He told them several times He was going to go there and be betrayed and arrested and beaten and, and, and that He would be killed, but that hadn't sunk in their expectation of the immediate arrival of the kingdom of God continued. Now when they got to Jerusalem, it was a big deal. We've studied it before in Matthew and Mark and John, and someday maybe we will in in Luke. It was was quite a scene. There's reasons why why we call it the triumphal entry. But the kingdom didn't come that day. So they were forced to wait. They went to bed that night. Maybe a little mixed feelings. Glad to hear He was welcomed that way, but no kingdom. Well, guess it'll be tomorrow. Didn't happen the next day. Didn't happen the next day. You get to Tuesday of the week before Jesus went to the cross on Friday. They'd gone through Monday and Tuesday, and Jesus had done a bunch of things in the temple He had had chased out the the money changers. He'd answered a bunch of questions. He dealt with a bunch of of challenges. He'd, He'd preached the gospel. He'd said so many interesting things. And by Tuesday evening, still no kingdom. They're leaving Jerusalem. They get as far as the Mount of Olives. It's a spectacular view of Jerusalem there. And Jesus said, look at that. Not one stone will be left on another. And so. Matthew twenty four three, as He was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. They'd been doing everything publicly, um, but they got Him alone, came to Him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Well, they knew the end of the age would be the coming of the kingdom. That was how they had understood it all that time. And Jesus went on to begin to answer their questions. He explained a lot about the time and the events that will happen immediately before He returns in glory to sets up the to set up the kingdom. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, this is the He, he talked about the 70th week of Daniel, a seven year period leading up to His second coming, and then in the midst of that teaching, which goes on through. Um, Matthew chapter twenty four. You get to chapter twenty four, verse twenty, verse thirty six of Matthew, and it says, Jesus says, "But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone." Now, surely it had to be starting to sink in. They still weren't crazy about that. He's going to die stuff. That. They didn't figure out until it happened. But it seems that they probably uh, thought something like, Oh, I get it. We've been so impatient. We've already waited days. A few more days will be okay. They knew Friday is the Passover, and then seven days beyond that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe maybe somewhere in that time frame. But then... Jesus died. They were crushed. They they scattered. They hid. They prayed. John is the only one we know of that stayed with him all the way to the cross. That was a horrible weekend for them. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And their elation was as unstoppable as their grief had been inconsolable. But Jesus didn't launch the kingdom. Instead He said, guys meet me in Galilee. Oh boy, another hike. Okay, we'll wait. Met them in Galilee. And then He said, I'll meet you again in Jerusalem. Oh boy. Then in Jerusalem He said, now you have to wait for what the Father promised which has to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, 40 long days had gone by. They were still waiting. And when they got together, whether a meal was involved or not, you can imagine how the question burned in their thinking, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? and they were just so ready well i don't think they were turning cartwheels over the answer that jesus gave acts chapter 1 verse 7 he said to them it is not for you to know oh it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority now understand jesus did not tell them they were wrong to be wanting the kingdom, uh, that, they were, that there was going to be a literal earthly kingdom. He didn't, he didn't try to disabuse them of that. The Old Testament predicted it. He had been specific about it in the Olivet Discourse, but they still needed to, under, to understand that kingdom was not beginning that day or any day soon. Now there's an interesting confluence of two words in that verse, times and epochs. And together they paint quite a, a, a thorough picture. The word times is the Greek word from which we get our word, it's the Greek word chronos, from which we get our words like chronology, chronometry, chronometer, etc. Uh, it it describes the sequence of time as denoted by calendars and clocks and stopwatches and sunrises and sunsets. It refers to specific times such as uh, Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. That's the chronology or the chronometry of our worship schedule. The word epochs is the Greek word kairos, which describes... Uh, Time in a different way. That's how you would say this is the the right time to invest. Or if you were a fancy author, you might say it was the best of times and the worst of times. Or these are the times that try men's souls. This is times as in opportune times or um, uh, blocks of time like, well, say... A thousand-year kingdom, so you can't know the day it begins, and you can't know when that thousand years is going to happen. Now, though we do know a lot about the features of the kingdom of God when it will be instituted on earth, we have we know things like many aspects of the curse on the earth will be lifted, uh, long lifespans will be restored. Uh, we say things like the lion will lie down with the lamb without one of them being the other 's lunch uh, The child will play by the adder 's den and not be and not be hurt it 's going to be a, a a glorious glorious time we know a lot about that, but we can 't know the exact time of jesus 's return, and that 's what will kick off that epoch, so that time will kick off that epic. Now, that was not the answer those guys wanted to hear. But it was the answer they needed to understand. And even though they didn't yet grasp it, the truth is there was going to be an extended time between then and the arrival of the kingdom. So, Jesus told them what was going to happen. We have it as Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but now the but is in contrast, you can't know the times or the ethics which have been fixed by the Father, but you will, so one thing you can't know, this will happen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, the area around Jerusalem, and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Oh, how they wanted to hear Jesus say, guys, it's next Tuesday. Or later tonight. They wanted to know. They wanted to to hear that the kingdom was coming right away. But Jesus predicted something very different. In fact, He mandated it. Now, technically, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is not at a command. It's a statement, a prediction of two very important things that will happen. Number one, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, the, the, the 11 apostles there had had a taste of that. Twice Jesus had sent them out preaching. They had uh, performed miracles in His name. They, they, had a, they had a sense of what that Holy Spirit power was, and now is going to be coming on everyone and remaining with them. We're going to see how that unfolds when we get to uh, chapter 2. But he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, it doesn't seem like in their memory banks they were replaying the words, I have to go away so the Holy Spirit can come. But he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And number two, he says you shall be my witnesses. Now, they expected to be his co-regents with the kingdom in place. But instead, they were going to be going around giving testimony. They were going to be testifying to what they knew about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the gospel, and the plan of God to, to build his church that would eventually include Jews' and Gentiles. Witnesses are those who describe what they have seen and heard. If you've ever been a, a witness in a courtroom or you've surely seen it portrayed in movies or, or, or television, they, they, they put you under oath. You have to promise to, to tell the truth and then they say, okay, on the date of such and such, in the place of such and such, what did you see so and so do? What did you hear? And you describe it. Uh, and, and, you, and you tell the truth of what you know to be the case. That's what our job is. We are to be witnesses to who Jesus is and what He accomplished. Oh, and it's fine to throw in. And, and by the way, He's coming back. And you have to deal with that. Now, the word witness, the Greek noun is martyres, the Greek verb is martyreo. And because of what happened mainly to early Christians who were faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ, the word for witness has turned into our word, martyr. A martyr is a person who is killed because of his or her beliefs. Oh, and by the way, guess what happened to the apostles John was the last one. and He may or may not have been violently put to death, but he was was, uh, exiled. Now at this point, notice that Jesus stated in advance what was going to happen. That's why I call it Jesus' prediction. Now, can you take this as a mandate? That it is our responsibility to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the, re- the remotest parts of the earth? Absolutely, you can. We should. That is, our, that is our job description. But his followers on that day did not take it as a command. They did not start planning. Okay, guys, let's form a team. Um, we need a team for Jerusalem. We need a bigger team to spread out to Judea. Somebody, yeah, guys, I know you don't like them, but somebody's got to go to the Samaritans. And then comes the big one. We've got to go to the remotest part of the earth. And you know who lives there? Gentiles. They weren't planning. That was was not a time of rejoicing for them. They wanted to hear, the kingdom's here. Take Take your throne next to mine. That's what they wanted. But there was going to be a plan that would last, well... We know of a roughly 2,000 years so far. We still live in phase three of that plan. And would you notice that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is not only Jesus' prediction of what was going to happen, it's the inspired outline of the book of Acts. Two books of the New Testament have, if you will, one verse in each one of them that is the outline for the whole book. In, uh, uh, in, in Acts, it's this one. Uh, you have the gospel going to Jerusalem, and Judea, and then you have uh, it going to Samaria, and then to the to the Gentiles. First uh, eight chapters, or the first seven chapters, then Samaria in chapter eight. Gentiles, the remotest part of the earth, part of the earth, in chapters nine through twenty-eight. The other one, since you're wondering which one it is, the Book of Revelation. It says, write down these things, things which you've seen, that's the vision of Jesus in chapter 1, the things which are, that's Jesus' letters to the seven churches, and then the things which will happen after these things, that's the rest of the book of Revelation, which takes us all the way to the end of the story. Now, finally for today, Jesus' promotion. Back in Luke, and here again is another part of this connection, Luke In Luke 24, 51, had already given a brief description of this event. Now he's going to elaborate. So I call this the exclamation point on Jesus' life in His first coming. Chapter 1, verse 9. After He had said these things about the plan, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. Now, I've had thousands, multiple thousands of conversations in my lifetime. Not one has ever ended like that. I've had people go away laughing. I've had people go away mocking. I've had people go away offended. Uh, They've hung up on me or they've cheerfully said goodbye or they'll give you a handshake or a hug and, and the conversation. Nobody's, he just was lifted up. Nobody's ever left like that before. Well, there's Enoch and there's Elijah. They were the two in the Old Testament that are types not of Jesus, but, <clears throat> but of the rapture where God takes a believer without dying to be with Him. Um, in Enoch's case, it's just real run-of-the-mill and Enoch was not because God took him. It doesn't give any description. In, in the case of Elijah, a lot more dramatic scene involving chariots and horses of fire. And you know what music was playing? It was, you know, while the guys were running down the beach. Uh, okay. A lot of people watch that, haven't they? Okay. Um, that's a picture of the rapture, but they, they were taken without dying. Jesus had died and he risen again. This is his ascension. Here, there are no chariots. No horses, no fire, no fanfare, no music. They're just talking. And he was lifted up and a cloud received him. It was as dramatic as Elijah's departure. But this time, God sent play-by-play announcers. Look at verses 10 and 11. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Now those are angels. Pretty pretty obvious that they are angels. And picture the scene. Jesus is talking. They're looking at him. He ends the sentence and he's lifted up. And their eyes are following him. And a cloud receives him from their sight. So they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Yeah, I would have been too. There's two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. So two angels show up. Men of Galilee, why are you staring into the, into the sky? Men of Galilee, by the way, is quite accurate because of the 12 apostles, only Judas was not from Galilee. And he had killed himself by then. So yeah, men of Galilee, that's exactly right. But every time I read this I can't help but think that the silliest question in all the Bible is why do you stand looking into the sky? I'm pretty sure I know what I would have said. Because Jesus just went there! Where do you expect us to be looking? Of course we're staring into the sky. Now, we can see the glory in this, but just try to imagine what the disciples were feeling and thinking when that happened. now i 'll bet you that three of them were having a flashback because Peter and James had John and John had been there at the Transfiguration. they had seen the glory, they'd seen that blinding light, they'd heard the voice, "This is my beloved son they 'd heard that that voice from heaven. I bet Peter and James and John expected that as soon as these two angels hit the dimmer switch, Jesus is going to be standing here. We might hear a voice from heaven. But that didn't happen. All 11 of them had to be gut-punched. Even the angel said, This Jesus who has been taken up from you. He was with you. He's been taken from you into heaven. What a gut-punch for them. He was everything to them. They had given up everything and followed Him. They had been sent out twice to preach at His command. and They had done miracles in His power. Surely they had to be thinking, how can we possibly go on without Him? And remember, what had been constantly on their minds now for over a month... They ached to see the kingdom of God launched on earth. They expected it as they went up to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. They, they waited patiently. They were still expecting it when they got the Olivet Discourse. Instead, they still expected it, and, and, and then he died, and then he'd risen again, and they still were expecting it. They were still were yearning for it. As I said, John's the only one we know of the twelve that actually stayed nearby Jesus all the way to the cross. Remember, Jesus handed off the care of His mother to the Apostle John. It's hard to imagine how crushing it was for them as they had scattered and hid that night. Some of those believing women had followed Jesus all the way. They were rewarded with being the first to see Him after the resurrection. And I think especially of one of the ones that we know was there. We're going to see her mentioned by name, Lord willing, next week. His mother, Mary, saw this. About 33 years earlier, when she and Joseph had dedicated Jesus in the temple, remember they took Him there, and, oh yeah, I guess who recorded this? Luke. They heard... Some amazing words from a man named Simeon who had been told that he was going to get to see the Messiah before he died. Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. You're going to fall if you don't follow him. You're going to rise if you do follow him. And then Simeon says to Mary, And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What a unique role in history Mary played. Her soul was pierced. I've seen parents when a child dies, even an adult child. Children aren't supposed to die before their parents. It's a soul-piercing thing. She'd watched her son die on a cross. And he's the only innocent man that was ever executed. Then she had the elation of seeing him after the resurrection. Now this. Yeah, she was part of that group that believed the kingdom of God was coming immediately. What could she have been thinking? We'll never know until we meet her and We can ask in person. But that isn't the point here. Look again at verse 11. This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The point is that he's coming again. How did he go into heaven? Physically, literally, visibly? In plain sight, He's going to come in the same way. Oh, but when you read it in, in, in Revelation, or in, uh, well, you can read it in Revelation 19. You can also read the description in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. He's going to turn out every single light in the universe. And I don't know how this works with a spherical world. Everybody is going to see Him everybody is going to see him in his glory he will come in just the same way as you've watched him you were looking down you watched him go into the clouds when he comes for his church he's going to come into the clouds and receive us to himself then we'll be with him seven horrible years will go by on earth and then he'll come again and then he'll come the kingdom we can put all those pieces together as we, as we move along. But the point is that now we have a God-given, Spirit-empowered task to do until Jesus comes for us. We are to be His witnesses. It's our calling. It's our privilege. It's our duty to give testimony, speaking truth in love, declaring the good news. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was ra- he raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And in the meantime, it is just fine. As a matter of fact, it's a good thing for us to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to yearn for that kingdom just as much as those people did. Paul, at the end of his life, wrote this and 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not to me only but also to those who have loved His appearing. I love to think about Him appearing. Someday we'll hear a trumpet and the voice of an archangel and we who are alive and remain will be snatched up to be with Him. Oh, wow. I hope it's before the end of this service. But as long as we know people, or we even know about people anywhere in the world who've not yet dealt with the gospel, we have a job to do. And unlike the apostles that day, we are blessed to have the rest of the New Testament. We know how all of this is going to play out. We don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but we know it's coming. And we know the end of the story. If you go to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, listen to verses 16 and 17 and then down to verse 20. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches, the seven churches that that's addressed to, all the churches of all the places in all the time. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. It goes all the way back to the promise of the kingdom. He's going to reign on, the, king, on the, the throne of David in Jerusalem. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And by the way, notice, I'm the root of David and the descendant of David. Well, what's he saying? Is he eternal or something? Yeah. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. That's us. Tell people, come to the Lord. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. John chapter 7. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then you skip down to Revelation 22.20. He who testifies to these things says, yes. I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what more can we say than come, Lord Jesus? Please, our Father, let us understand the, the seriousness of our responsibility to be faithful witnesses and let us Know the joy of seeing uh, souls harvested by the gospel. Have your way with us to that end. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.